There we go. All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Riverwood Church. Uh, so, so, so glad you guys all could come and join us in worship. And uh, I guess I need to say thanks for sitting up front because it's like everyone's over here on the side. So, so thanks for making me feel like someone that wants to be near me. Uh, I did shower in the last week, so I, I should be okay. Uh, hey, a couple of announcements before we get going with this morning's message. Uh, hopefully you got your handout when you came in. Uh, Riverwood family, if you would fill that out every single week. That way any first-time guests that see those things, they uh, see everyone else doing it, so it's not weird or awkward for them. And uh, seriously, every Tuesday, well, I guess except this Tuesday and the following Tuesday, Normally every Tuesday, the elders get together and pray for you guys, uh, and we do this. Uh, it's the very first thing we do when we, we come in. Uh, we don't spend a bunch of time on a bunch of other business and stuff. We, we get right at it because we love you guys, we care for you, and we want to see you growing in Christ. So please, if you have anything going on in your life that you want prayer for, we would be honored to get to pray for you. So please, use those connection cards to do that. And also at any time, you can email any of us elders, and we would uh, we'll bring that to the team, and we would love to, to care for you in that way. Also, uh, we are serving this Tuesday. Several of you have already signed up to serve at the uh, food pantry uh, after our tour at the food bank down in, in Waterloo. We learned that we should not be calling this the Waverly Food Bank. It's the Waverly Food Pantry, uh, the mobile pantry. So if you can serve at the pantry uh, on Tuesday and you have not signed up yet, if you already did, don't, don't worry about it. Uh, we sent those to Shannon. Uh, but if you can help out on Tuesday, we just like to give uh, the uh, uh, team a heads up on about how many are coming from Riverwood so that they don't have a panic attack and worry that there won't be enough people to serve. Um, also, VBS is coming up. Uh, we would love you to register your kids. Uh, it's February 24th through 27th, uh, so please get your kids registered. They will have a blast for kids entering grades K through 5. Also, we really need volunteers. Uh, we need small group leaders and assistants. Uh, Ed's helping lead the games. Do you need any help, Ed? Okay, so sign up to help with the games. We need security. So great big buff middle school girls uh, will fit the bill. Uh, we need uh, all sorts of people to jump in and be involved. We will probably have 150 kids that will come and be a part of this. And they are going to have a wonderful, high-paced, fun, exciting time. And we want to do everything we can to make it safe and give them every opportunity to hear about Jesus. Uh, so, And also, I'm going to invite you, pray. Pray for BBS. Pray for the kids. Pray for those who are leading. Pray for those who are teaching. Uh, pray that the kids just hear the gospel and that God uses this to shape them and mold them into that image of Jesus. So please sign up for that. You do not need to put that on your connection card. Just go to www.waverlyiorbbs.org. All right. Well, we're going to continue in our Genuine Joy series, and I want to begin by telling you about four-year-old Aaron. Four-year-old Aaron struggled to share, especially if the person that he was supposed to be sharing with was his little brother. Uh, it would go like this. Aaron would have two cookies, and mom would see this as a teaching opportunity to help young Aaron become a generous, giving person. And so she would not give me an option. She would force me to share. And I would say, no, I'd argue against it. These are mine. But no, I had to give one up. So here's what I would do. I would judge the two cookies and decide which of them was better. Usually the one, the one that was bigger, but if it had more chocolate chips, that might win. But whichever one I determined was better, I would then give the inferior cookie to my brother. Because if I had the better cookie, it made me better. I would like to think that I have outgrown this sort of selfishness, 
However, last month at the Waverly Food Pantry, I heard my inner four-year-old screaming because one of the patrons asked after I'd helped carry their box through if they could borrow my phone to call their ride to let them know they were ready for pickup. On the outside, I was very generous. Sure, no problem. On the inside, my four-year-old was screaming. No, it's my phone. You can't use it. And here's why. There was this sick little part of me that was thinking, you'll drop the phone, you'll crack the screen. I've never had a cell phone with a cracked screen and you'll put the first scratch on it. You cannot use my phone. Obviously, I love to use it. Now, maybe you are more noble than I. I really, really, really hope so. Maybe you're the type of person who just gladly and willingly lets strangers use your cell phone. Maybe you are the type of person who will just let someone at work go first or have first choice. Maybe you're so virtuous, you will let your spouse or your sibling have the last dish of ice cream. And if so, I hope to grow up to be like you, because, I mean, this is ice cream we are talking about. But even if you are the world's most selfless person, you have a front row seat to the selfishness that exists within humanity. All you have to do is wake up every morning and go to work, or go to school, or hang out with your friends, or just live in the same house as someone else. Like, you see selfishness all the time, because we believe that if we can get stuff for ourselves, if we can have the best, it somehow makes me better, more important, I'll be more liked, I'm more loved, I'm more valuable, and so we are selfish. Now, I have seen a level of selfishness within the American church for the last 25 years. I've been in full-time ministry since Leanne and I graduated from college, and I've paid attention to the American church. The American church got caught up in something, an area that they became very, very selfish in. That the thought was that if you could be successful in this area, you were better, you were more important, you were more relevant, and everyone would look and go, wow, God is really blessing you. And that area of selfishness is people. Particularly, how many people attend your church and participate within your church? There's this idea in America that if something is bigger, it must be better. So the more people that are involved, it must be a sign that this is the right thing. It's what some people call up and to the right. It's this idea that if you have a chart and as you move to the right and you go along a timeline, you want to see everything going up in attendance. And if, if everything's going up and to the right, you're winning and God must be blessing you. But if you have a dip down, it does not go up. It actually goes down and to the right. Something is wrong and God might not be with you. Maybe he's punishing you for something. Years ago, I was sitting in the office of my executive pastor. He was my uh, direct supervisor, my, my boss. And uh, we, we met, oh, I think, about every other week. And so we're just having our, our one-on-one. And he says, hey, did you see the annual report for that new church plant everyone's talking about? There was this new church in America that one magazine has na had named at that time the fastest-growing church ever to have existed within North America. I mean, within like two, three years, this church was running multiple thousands of people. I think they maybe broke the 10,000 barrier, you know, like super, super quick. And out of curiosity, my boss had pulled up their annual report. 
And so I, I start looking over his shoulder and I start looking and sure enough, there's this infographic, a little bar graph and everything for every year. I think the church at the point was only like four years old. And I mean, everything was going up and to the right. And then my boss says, did you notice the asterisk? No. And he points it out. Sure enough, there was a little asterisk. And so we scroll down to the bottom of the page and in a small little tiny font, in fact, he, <laughs> Kim had to uh, expand the zoom on his computer so that we could read it. It said results were cumulative. In other words, we'll just pretend they had 300 baptisms in, say, year three. The next year, it looked like they had 500 baptisms. But it was actually cumulative, meaning that in year four, they'd only had 200 baptisms compared to the 300. So that their graph wouldn't have a down, they just added everything together. So everything continued to go up and to the right. Why? Why would people mislead about statistics so that it looks like their church is up and to the right? Because we know in America, bigger is better. I have uh, had at least two people, I think there may be a third, but I, I can remember at least two sets of people who, after meeting me, find out I'm a pastor, find out I'm the pastor of Riverwood, and then... And I'll ask them, hey, are you guys part of a church? And, and they'll say, yeah, we're part of, and they'll name it. And I'll, oh, hey, great, I know the pastor, and, and we'll talk for a minute. And then they end up apologizing because they never visited Riverwood. Because they discovered what building we met in and immediately in their mind thought, small church, it must not be very good. And so therefore, they wrote us off because everyone knows bigger is better. No wonder there's pressure on churches to do anything and everything they can to try to grow in attendance and to become selfish, to do what they can to keep people. Because if they can just keep more people, then everyone else will notice, then they will come and be a part, making them get even bigger, and that's more money being given, more people to volunteer, more of everything, and they just can make a name for themselves. And all the other pastors and churches around will go, wow, something great must be going on there. Bigger's better. Up and to the right. It's the American way. What if I told you that God's dream for the local church is not up and to the right? What if I told you that God's dream for the local church is that the local church contributes to the global church and it's about the global church growing up and to the right and not just one entity? Would we consider that success? If we had a year where we actually had less people in attendance, but it was because we actually sent so many people out. I like how J.D. Greer, he's a pastor of the Summit Church in North Carolina, currently the president for the Southern Baptist Convention. And he says that he thinks that a church should not be measured by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. Today, as we go into Philippians, we're going to see Paul talk about sending and not just sending your castoffs, sending the best, sending people to expand God's kingdom. Because it's not about just one little entity. It's about God's global church. And what can we do as a part of that to get on the Jesus mission and help God's church to expand, even if it means ours does not. That's what we're going to see today. Father, I pray that you would help us to capture this mission that I believe you have us on that this would resonate in our hearts. And God, I just pray right now, there are some people here who are going to hear this, and you are going to be preparing them and calling them. They're going to be sent. 
Some of them are going to go on a journey of being sent to another nation, to another city, to another community here in Iowa to help people find you and follow you. But God, beyond that, I pray also you'd help all of us to see that we are already sent. That if we proclaim to be followers of you, that Jesus, just as you were sent by the Father, you are sending us. Help us to hear that today. Would you just, right now, do, do your spiritual surgery on our, on our eyes. Help us to see that you're calling us to. Help us to see the people around us. Help us to live sent. I ask you to do this in your son's name. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Philippians. Uh, we are in week seven of our Genuine Joy series. We are coming to the end of chapter two. Next week, uh, Patrick Gray will be here on Father's Day to teach uh, the beginning of chapter three. And then the week after that, Ed Pavlik, one of our elders, will be uh, continuing at chapter three, finishing it up. But today we get to finish up chapter two. I, I don't know about you, but if you've been with us through this series I've been absolutely loving this, and I, I hope you have too. I've just been learning so much here from this book. It's, it's just been really, really rich. And I especially loved chapter two. Two weeks ago, we got to start this chapter off with just a really, I just felt like Paul was really strong and clear and so poetic as he called us to church unity, that he knew for us to experience church unity, we had to go uh, uh, like down, under, serve others, to, to go the, the path of humility. That as we consider the needs of others before our own, that would help us have this church unity. And so to help us out, he said, hey, you've got to be like Jesus. Jesus was the, the best perfect example of humility that has ever been. That Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to use to his own advantage, he, he set it aside and took on human form. That, that he became human, took on the, the, the form of a slave and became obedient, even to death, death on a cross. And by humbly dying in our place, our sins could be washed free and, and clean, and we could come into a relationship with God. And so because of his humble act, God raised him up and exalted him to the highest place that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow on heaven, earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, that, wow, we could preach that every single week. That was so good. And then last week, we saw Paul say, so therefore, because of this truth, because of Jesus' humility through the cross, we therefore go and obey him. And obeying is not a duty or a drudgery. It is a joy when we really surrender ourselves to Christ. And now this week we come to this part where suddenly Paul just starts talking about two dudes. Like, like it doesn't have the theological truths. It doesn't have the lofty platitudes. It doesn't have that kind of call and command. I mean, he just starts talking about a couple of guys. I, honestly, on the surface, chapter two just seems to fizzle. And so there's a part of us that as you look at it, you're like, okay, maybe next week Patrick will get to, you know, back to something exciting as he goes into chapter three. I don't want you to miss it though, because I believe God really has something here for you. That as we look at Paul talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus, that eventually you'll realize that Paul could have also talked about you. So let's see what he says about them and what it means for us today. Chapter two, starting in verse 19, we'll look at Timothy first. Paul wrote, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, <laughs> for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel? I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Already in this letter, we have seen Paul flip-flopping back and forth. He's writing this letter from prison. 
And he has indicated how he, he loves the Philippians and he wants to be with them. And so there's this part of him that really hopes he will be released and he will get to return to Philippi. But yet we've also seen him talk about how he might not get out of prison. Like this could be the end of his life. He, he may die here, but he's already told him, hey guys, don't worry though. If I die, that's great gain. I get to go be with Jesus. So whether I live or die, it's all for the glory of God. So he's saying there, I, I really want to come to you, but, but I can't quite yet. So what? since I can't come, what I'd love to do is I would love to send to you Timothy. Now, we met Timothy in week one of this series. If you remember, we did not start in the book of Philippians. We actually started back in the book of Acts. We went to Acts chapter 16, where we saw Paul go to the city of Philippi and start a church. We saw three people, very, very different people, put their faith in Jesus. And that's where the church began. But before he ended up at Philippi, he was in a city called Lystra. At the beginning of chapter 16, he's in Derby and, and Lystra. And while in Lystra, he meets some other Jesus followers who start saying, hey, have you met this guy, Timothy? And he kept hearing about this young man. And, he, and so he's like, all right, I got to meet, meet him. And he does. Now, Timothy was the son of a, of a uh, Greek father, but a Jewish mother. And his Jewish mother believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the, the, the son of God. And so Timothy grew up in a home where he heard about Christ. He heard the stories. I mean, they, all these events had just happened. And so he heard it, he believed it, and it was changing him. And so Paul meets him and pretty soon realizes why everyone is so impressed with this young man. Paul's so impressed, he actually invites Timothy to come along with him and Silas on their missionary journey. And so that's what we see. As chapter 16 continues on, we see them head to one place and, and they have some problems there and they try to get to another, but they, they can't get in and they're trying to pray where they're supposed to go. And then Paul has a dream, a dream of a man in the region of Macedonia saying, come help. And so they jump on a ship, they head over to Macedonia. And if you're going to Macedonia, you need to go to the most prominent city. The, the, the prominent Roman colony in Macedonia was Philippi. So the reason that Paul wants to send Timothy to the Philippians is because Timothy has been there. Timothy had a front row seat. I mean, he was there at the river when Paul shares the gospel and Lydia put their faith in Christ. T Timothy saw the little girl have the demon cast out of her. He heard the news later after the earthquake of the Philippian jailer putting his faith in Jesus. Timothy saw these people become a church. And so he knows them, they know him. And he's saying, I, I can think of no one better to send you. I'd love to send Timothy so that he could hear from you and bring back word and encourage me. But then he kind of indicates, but I, I can't let him go quite yet. I, I got to kind of wait to see what happens with me. And so because I can't send Timothy, I'm sending another guy, Epaphroditus, verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the only spot in the entire Bible where we hear about Epaphroditus. Now, some scholars think that Epaphroditus is the same guy Epaphras mentioned in the book of Colossians and in the book of Philemon. However, I think they are two separate individuals because when you go into Colossians and you see him describe uh, um, Epaphras, 
He is from Asia Minor. He's from Colossae. The way he writes here in Philippians, though, it seems that Epaphroditus is from Philippi, the Macedonian region. So I think we're dealing with two different guys here. And, and what I envision happening is that Paul ends up helping start this church. Maybe Epaphroditus was one of the first in that church. Or maybe he came to Christ later. And then the church there in Philippi hears about Paul and how he has a need. And so they decide to send someone. They send Epaphroditus. Maybe Epaphroditus joined up kind of like Silas and Luke and, and Timothy did with Paul. Joins up and travels around with him. Or maybe Paul was already in prison. The Philippians hear about a need that he has. And so they send Epaphroditus to go and help. But wherever he was, while he was with Paul, he became really, really ill. So ill that he almost died. And the church back in, uh, in Philippi heard the news and they got worried. I mean, this, this was their guy. It, it would be like us sending one of you on, on a, a missionary trip. And all of a sudden we find out that, that you got like, you know, some horrible fever. You got really, really ill. We as a church would be praying like crazy. It would break our hearts if, if you were lost. So if you were healed and came back to us, we would have such joy. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. I'm sending Epaphroditus to you because I know it will encourage you and it will encourage him. And so Paul writes a letter, rolls up the scroll, seals it up, and hands it to Epaphroditus and says, head home. Take this to the church. So as they're unrolling the scroll, reading it, Epaphroditus is standing right there. And Paul is saying, I hope this encourages you because I know it's going to mean a lot to him and it's going to encourage me knowing that you guys are reunited. All right, so we have a passage here where we've met Timothy, we've met Epaphroditus. So what? I mean, like, is, is the point of this just to be able to answer Bible trivia? Who are the two men that Paul named at the end of Philippians chapter 2? Oh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Learned that Sunday. Good to go. Like, like what? why is Paul including this? I, I think for us, there's something really, really, really important that we need to see. And for us to understand it, we need to look at who Timothy and Epaphroditus are, and more importantly, what was in them, who they were in their character. Notice how Paul describes them. First with, with Timothy, there in verse 20. He says, I have no one like him. In other words, Paul's saying, Timothy's the best. In fact, Paul believed so much in Timothy, trusted him so much, that after Paul planted a church in the city of Ephesus, this was one of the most strategic cities of their day and their time, he wasn't willing to just hand it over to anyone. He left it to Timothy. So when we read First and Second Timothy, Timothy is pastoring in, in the city of Ephesus. And, and Paul is trying to write to encourage him as a leader because he's entrusting him with one of the most important churches he planted. And, and, and then if you go down to Epaphroditus, he describes Epaphroditus as my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Yeah, but Paul thinks this guy's great. This guy was willing to do the hard work. In fact, he was willing to work so hard, it almost cost him his life. Now, I think that if Paul was a 21st American uh, century pastor, I said that wrong, 21st century American pastor, there we go, he would not be saying, hey, I'd, I'd love to send these guys to you. He'd be saying, I, I need to keep these guys. Like, like, here I am, I'm in prison, so I can't exactly get up on Sundays and preach. So I'm going to entrust this to Timothy, because we're in Rome. This is the most powerful city in the Roman Empire. If we can reach Rome with the gospel... Like, just imagine the ramifications. So I got to keep the best. We're going to set Timothy up. He's going to preach every single week. And then we need someone to head up like the men's ministry, the growth group. We're going we're gonna to hand it over to Epaphroditus. He's going to lead in these areas. We're going to build the best church in the world. Everyone's going to go, wow, look what God's doing in Rome. It's going to become this massive thing. We're going to change the world. That's not what he does. Just these two guys, they're some of the best. 
what I want to do is I want to send them to you. He isn't looking to, can I keep these guys? Instead he's saying, I, I, I want to release these guys. Remember several years ago hearing uh, Dave Ferguson, the pastor of Community Christian Church, talk about a similar situation that he came up uh, against. Um, one day at lunch or, or a breakfast with a businessman, Dave uh, shares the story of a, a businessman saying, hey, what, what's your dream for this new church you're starting? And so he, he says he shares, you know, kind of the, the standard fare. And the guy looks at him and goes, that's not big enough. David had a dream in his heart. He's thinking, well, do I dare share it? He grabs a napkin and he draws kind of an outline of the Chicagoland area. And then he kind of crosses it off and says, we're praying that God would give us each of these quadrants, that we would reach Chicagoland. The businessman looks at him and goes, now that's a dream to give your life for. So that's what Community Christian began to do. They began looking for ways to plant campuses all around the Chicagoland area because they realized that their one location in Naperville wasn't going to be enough to get everyone to come to. So they started looking, how can we get the gospel, take it to the people? And so they started planting these campuses. Nowadays, they have 10 campuses around Chicago. But at the time of the story, they ended up getting to a point about two or three uh, campuses when the youth pastor approaches Dave and says, Dave, I'm feeling God calling me to more. And in Dave's heart, he's thinking, yes, you're going to help us plant another campus. Campus number four on the way. And instead, the guy says, I'm feeling God calling me to go plant a church in Boston. And Dave says in his heart, he heard a four-year-old. No, you're mine. Because he thought the world of this youth pastor. This guy was so gifted. He thought this guy's going to become a phenomenal campus pastor and maybe even one day could take over as the pastor of our church. And so Dave did not want to let him go. He did not want to send him. He wanted to keep him. And that's when Dave says he felt conviction. It was like God saying, Dave, are you going to make this about your little kingdom? Are you going to make this about God's kingdom? Is this just about you trying to expand your church? Or you, do you want to expand God's church? So Dave said, a few months later, they brought the youth pastor and his family up on stage. Several of the, the pastors, the staff, laid hands on them and prayed for them to send them to Boston. And then Dave said, he looked out upon the church family and says, some of you need to go with me. And that began a movement within their church. So much so that just a few years later, they sent one of their key strategic campus pastors, one of their key leaders, to Kansas City, Missouri, to start Restore Community Church, where some unknown young adult pastor from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, could go there, learn about planting a church, so that he could then move and parachute drop into Waverly, Iowa, to start a church. If they hadn't had a culture of sending, who knows what we would have here. But because Dave reached a point where he realized, this isn't about us. We need to send. Look what began to happen. That's the kind of culture we want to have at Riverwood. We don't want it to be about just trying to keep for ourselves. It's about what can we do to send people to reach those out there. Someday, we're going to be sending. And that's why we're beginning to dabble right now. It's part of why we took Patrick Ray on to, uh, uh, as support we began to, to support him in a very generous amount out of our budget. Because we, we can't reach North Minneapolis from Waverly. Patrick's there. So in a, some ways, we're kind of sending him. It's why two weeks ago, we sent four families from Riverwood to go and help Patrick. We, we sent them to help with these two community gospel gatherings. 
And we got a re- little report back of, of some of the things that happened there. And we want to continue to send. I look forward to the day that we send some of you overseas. Maybe it'll be for a one or two week time period. Maybe some of you is because you're going for your life. I look forward to the day where we send one, two, three families to go and plant a church somewhere else in Iowa or maybe somewhere around America. Maybe the day comes where we send 20, 30, 40 of you to go to Clarksville or Plainfield or Janesville or, or, or Reedland to go and begin a new work to establish a church where people will have every opportunity to find Jesus and follow him. And the thing is, if we do that, we send 20, 30, 40 people, we may have a year when the annual report looks like we had a dip. Does that mean it was a loss? Did we fail? I don't think so. I actually think that would be great success. Because it wouldn't be just about our mission. It would be about God's mission. And releasing you guys to do what God is calling you to do. But I don't think the sending is a someday thing. I think this idea of sending is a today thing. You realize that Jesus, after he rose again from the dead, stands among his disciples and says to them, just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Just as the Father sent me from heaven to come to give my life so that you could find this connection with the Father. So I am now sending you to give your life to go and help others find me and follow me, to have a connection again with their creator. When Jesus stood on top of the mountain, Matthew 28, he says, before he ascends to heaven, go and make disciples. I don't think this was said to just the 12. I don't think it was just said to the 120 that were hanging around. I don't even think it was said just to the 500 who saw the risen Christ. I think it is said to anyone who follows Jesus. Because he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so if you are coming under the authority of Jesus, he says, so therefore, because I have authority, I'm telling you, go. Go and make disciples. And he even told them where to go. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I wonder if the disciples were sitting there going, oh, wait, wait, Jesus, uh, we're in Jerusalem. I mean, like, the city's right there. What do you mean, go to Jerusalem? We're, We're here already. Which means that being sent isn't about location. It's about perspective. That word, when he says to go and make disciples, it could be translated as you are going. And so this is about you just going about life, sharing Jesus. It's as you go to work, as you go to school, as you hang out with your friends, as you go to the gym, as you go to the movies, that as you are going, you make disciples. And yes, it isn't just in Africa. It isn't just in Des Moines. It isn't just out there. It could be right here. God is calling you to live sent. If Jesus has redeemed you, you are one of his best. And he wants to use you. And he wants to use you now. So how do you live sent? First thing is, you have to be a follower of Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you've never given your life to Christ, I'm going to encourage you, do so. Jesus gave his life for you. He died on a cross for the forgiveness of your sin, even though he had never sinned himself. He did not deserve the punishment. He took it for us. And by taking it for us, he now creates the path for us to connect with the Father. And then when you connect with the Father, you find Jesus, you begin to follow him. And part of following Jesus means you are sent. 
also, it's more than just saying we follow Jesus. It's truly being surrendered to Jesus. To live sent, you have to surrender. Did, did you notice how Paul described uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus? I mean, the, he talked about how they had just incredible character. That kind of character does not happen by accident. Like, that kind of character happens by the deep work of God. Which means you, in a sense, like in, it says in Romans 12, you have to crawl up onto the altar as a living sacrifice. And you basically say, God, you have total reign of me. I give you control of my schedule. I give you control of my relationship. I give you control of my money. Like, it's all yours. I completely surrender. And then as you surrender, he can then change your perspective. And that's the third part. I've had uh, friends who have had uh, LASIK surgery. I clearly have not, as I still have these thick things on my face. But they talk about how their vision was incredibly blurry. But then after LASIK, they just said they could see things so much more clear. And, like, like eliminated the need for glasses or just took, greatly reduced their need for them. I think some of us need spiritual LASIK surgery. Like, our sight is blurry because all we can see is our schedule, our calendar, our, our to-do list. It, it's all about me. We live in this selfish little bubble. And as we crawl onto that surgery table, surrendering to God, he does this LASIK surgery on our spiritual eyes, and we begin to see things much more clearly. We get to see the way Jesus saw the world, and we start seeing it isn't about me. We start considering the needs and interests of others before our own. And now we start going to them to be a blessing. And we start seeing their pain and we come in and we listen. We see their need and we come and we serve. Sometimes we just are with them and we just show love. And maybe, just maybe, you'll get the opportunity to share this life-changing gospel with them. And their lives will be radically transformed as they put their faith in Christ and their spiritual eyes are opened as well. So if you want to live sense, if you want to give your life to this Jesus mission, Realize it's not about what we can just get for ourselves. It's what can we give. And I think what God wants is for you to give you. And to do that, you've got to first follow him. You've got to completely surrender to him. And then you say, God, change my perspective. Help me not to see me. Help me to see you. So, Father, I just pray that you would make us these kind of people. You would make us the type of Jesus followers that don't just... Uh, get dressed up on a Sunday and, and sing some songs that, that don't just listen to the, the Christian radio and, and live our day kind of on ourselves and, and make you our own little special relationship. But instead, that we would live sent. That we would realize that there is a world out there that you love. There are people who are in deep, desperate need of Christ. And so we've got ask God that you would perform that surgery, that you would clear up our vision, that we would see them and their need and we would be willing to surrender our calendar, our to-do list, our dreams, our desires to accept your to-do list, to accept your calendar, and accept your dreams. So God, help us to come onto this Jesus mission, to give our life fully to this, no matter what our age, no matter how long we've been following you, no matter what mistakes we have in our past, or even what we're struggling with now. May we just surrender fully to you. We follow you, Jesus out into this world that desperately, desperately needs you. So God, I just pray you'd help us to love like Jesus loved and lead like, like Jesus lived. The one day he'd leave behind what Jesus left behind. And that was followed. God, you do this for your glory. 
and I believe it will also be for our joy, that as we live these sent lives, it would activate our faith and take us to places with you we never dreamed we would ever go. So God, would you raise up a dream within us that we would see the people around us and we would love them as you send us to them. And it's in Jesus Christ we pray. Christ came to be sent. The reason he was sent was to go to a cross. And so as you listen to uh, Jake sing this next song, I encourage you to make it a prayer. You would say, Father, I'll follow you wherever you send me, wherever you lead, I will go to help the hurting, the broken, the needy. But I want you to realize you were broken. You were needy. You were trapped in your sin, and yet Jesus came to free you. So when you come to the communion elements, would those be a moment of celebration? Would that be a reminder that Jesus was sent for you? That as you take that bread, as you take that cup, and you bring those into you to make them one with who you are, you would remind that, be reminded that your life is tied to Christ. So just as the Father sent him, as you take those elements, that's him sending you. But it doesn't stop here. It begins here. Let's do this now. Remember.